This is a true crime podcast. It contains adult themes and content and may not be suitable for all listeners. Listener discretion is advised. He said, you know what this says? I said, yeah, it's a razor blade. He said, I got you at my mercy, don't you? And here, they were guards and I was a convict. And that's the way it was. You knew where you were. I wish you would just learn to behave like ladies. And uh, he said, if you draw any blood, I'll kill every man in there. So the man dropped the knife and turned to the other men that were with him. That he had set loose out of the very cells and said, well, he means it. He'll kill us if we don't give up. So they gave up. You do your own number. You do your own time. If you hear something, you keep it within yourself. If you see something, you're blind to it. I don't care if it's... If it's uh, a killing or whatever, you just don't see it. Welcome, ladies and gentlemen, to Behind Gray Walls podcast at the old Idaho Penitentiary about the men and women who are incarcerated here. My name is Anthony, and I'm speaking here with Sky. Hello. Yeah. How's Texas going, Sky? You know, Texas is it's finally cold. It is, um, what, November 12th. It finally got to about 34 degrees. Actually, it was 25 when I woke up this morning, um, and everyone is acting like the world is ending. <laughs> so, um, <laughs> but it is, I mean, I will say this, it is like the the cold is quite cold because of the humidity. I also didn't know that windows did the thing. You know what you see in like Christmas movies where like it's cold outside and so then there's like little edges of frost on the edge of the window panes. Uh-huh. Yeah, so that happens in like humid places. Uh... So that's a real thing that happens. So I'm learning all of these little all these little things. <laughs> nice. <laughs> How's Idaho? I miss it. It's amazing. You should. <laughs> so I think we're starting with you today. Who are you going to talk about? Okay, so today I am going to talk about number 4321, which is the best number. Mm. Uh, June Gordon. Sources for this, of course, just as usual, Inmate Files, Ancestry.com, some Idaho Daily Statesman articles, a little tiny bit of Wikipedia, but not very much, and then CityOfFiler.com. Okay, so June Gordon, or as she actually is known when she comes in as Mrs. George Gordon, claimed to have been born in Oklahoma City, Oklahoma in 1901. However, according to her census records, and we know that this is her real name because she came in with several names, oh. her she was actually born Susie Greer in Georgia in 1899. She was the third of eight children to Maggie and Robert Greer. She had two brothers and five sisters. So I think they had, if I remember right, it was like five girls in a row, two boys, and then one other girl. Wow. So lots of girls in this family. So the Greers lived in the South until the middle of the 1910s, and then the family moved to Utah. <laughs> and it is there that June, or Susie, married Asa E. Garner in Ogden, Utah, on February 18th, 1916. So um, some interesting stuff about Asa. He was born in Utah in 1892, and he was actually one of a pair of twins. Okay. Together, Susie and Asa had eight kids. Wow. Um, born between 1916 and 1929. So eight kids in 13 years. So she's like 15, 16 is... when she gets married, and then... 
Mm-hmm. Wow. And he's like 26, 25, 26, and they have mm-hmm. eight kids. Yep. I don't know the genders, and I'm not sure. I I would assume if, if it, on her intake form it said she had eight kids that all of them lived. Yeah. Because this is, this is getting into the time where it's less likely to lose children so often, but... Asa was constantly in and out of jail during their marriage. He is not a real great stand-up guy. And we may get to him, but he is sort of in for an innocuous crime, so we may not ever get to him. So because he's in and out of jail, he leaves June to have to fend for herself and the family, and she doesn't really have any real source of income. She married when she was really young. She lists her occupation as a housewife, so she's not really doing much uh, to bring in money. So she is first arrested in 1923 in Ogden, Utah for mendency, which is the legal term for begging, which is, I didn't know that. Mendency? Yeah. Interesting. Mendency. I've never heard that. That's cool. I know. So I think it also may have just been like a Utah thing because Utah kind of has funny names for crimes. Ah. So it could also be that. But I did look it up and it is like the legal term for begging. And it is she gets 60 days probation for that begging. So over the next six years, she is arrested around Utah for disturbing the peace, petite larceny and soliciting. But she never really served any jail time because she was always released to take care of her children since her husband was always in and out of prison. And this is where being a woman honestly gets you have a little bit of advantage because if you can put on a face and make a case for why your children need you, then more than likely you're not going to spend much time in jail. And I should also start off the story where this is sort of one of the creeps. She's not a super creep, but she's not real great either. So no bleeding heart for her, sort of a spoiler alert. (laughs) So yes, she's arrested. She never spends time uh, in jail. The next time she's arrested is January 29th, 1929. She is arrested in Salt Lake City, Utah, uh, under the name Florence Warner for basically a similar charge of begging. The official crime was just abbreviated as OMFP. And I sat there and I tried and tried and tried and tried to figure out like, oh, actually, obtaining money money under false pretenses is probably what it is. Because here's what she does. So she goes door to door with one of her young daughters and they knock on the door and the child, the little girl, has a a little card that they give to the homeowners. And this card says that June is deaf and dumb and they need money to go take care of the little girl's eyes. Like there's something wrong with the little girl's eyes. They need to take her to the doctor. And this is how they got money. (laughs) They would just basically go and pretend that June couldn't speak and couldn't work and would get money to quote unquote take care of the little girl's eyes. Ugh. Yeah. Yeah. Not not great. And it's just it's just the worst that she's using her kids. If it's just her, then like fine, do whatever you feel like you have to do. But don't bring the kids into it. Authorities describe her upon this arrest as a quote professional beggar, petty thief, and shoplifter. So she just doesn't have a doesn't have a good reputation. And after this arrest, she's actually turned over to the juvenile court, probably because of the little girl's role in the crime. And as far as I can tell, she doesn't get any time for this crime. 
So then, um, she is arrested on March 1st, 1930, so about a year and two months after her arrest in Salt Lake. She's arrested in Brigham City, Utah, as Susie Garner for passing a fictitious check, and she is sentenced to an indeterminate term at the Utah State Penitentiary. She is released three months later in June 1930, so that indeterminate term didn't really last very long. So, soon after her release from prison, she apparently had another baby. So, this is according to her mother. Her mother said, Susie told me that she was pregnant with a baby when she was in Utah, but I don't know if this is actually, if this is the baby that she's talking about, if she was faking it. So, supposedly she has a baby when she gets out of Utah, but just don't really know any details on that. After the release from the Utah Penitentiary, her stepfather finds a job for Asa, who had also recently been released from prison. So the family's doing really well. Both parents are released. And um, Asa works for a little bit, and he takes his first paycheck, and he takes the family up to Twin Falls County, Idaho. Um, more specifically, Filer, Idaho. Huh. From what I can tell, Asa just is sort of in and out of the family's life. You know, he takes him up to Twin Falls County, and then he goes out and sort of does his own thing. Maybe he gets arrested, maybe he doesn't. He just is never really steady uh, in the picture. So, again, the family just doesn't have very much money, so June has to resort to illegal means. So, in December 1930, she is arrested in Filer, Idaho, for passing a fictitious check at the Twin Falls Hardware Company. So, here's a little bit about Filer. Now, we've had quite a bit of Twin Falls County in this uh, season, and if I remember correctly, we have at least one more inmate who was arrested in Burley, so um, we'll still get a little bit of that area. Filer, just because it's a pretty small town, there's not a ton of history to get into. Filer is just west of Twin Falls, just a couple miles outside of town. It was established in 1906 as the end stop of the Oregon Shortline branch at Twin Falls. It was named after Walter G. Filer, who was a mining engineer and surveyor from Pennsylvania, who supervised construction of the Diversion Dam on the Snake River, and he was also the general manager of the Twin Falls Water and Land Company. So Walter G. Filer doing a lot uh, in that area at the time. In modern day, Filer is best known for hosting the Twin Falls County Fair and Rodeo, which is one of the biggest fairs in the northwestern United States. Um, it's held every first week of September, which I did not know about this. Did you know about I this? I didn't know. Okay. Um, <laughs> it looks like it's uh, quite a good time. So um, the next one, if you're interested in going, won't be for another uh, 10 months, but it's September 2nd through the 7th of 2020. If you're interested or you're already from the area, you probably know all about it. And we apologize being from Ada County. We're just Ada County losers, I guess. But mm. <laughs> what, what do they have at the fair? Like what kind of things? Yeah. So um, it looks like that they have obviously just sort of all the rides. They have rodeos and it's also the Magic Valley Stampede. They've got like, a carnival. They have the rodeo, motorsports and concerts during the fair. You can get admissions for ponies, pistols and pistons. Whoa. Maybe we'll have to go out there uh, next September or um, you should go out there next September yeah. because I will still not be there. So Filer currently has, um, or this is the 2016 estimate, a population of about 2,723. So pretty small town uh, out there in Filer. 
Back to June. Again, June is arrested December 1930 for passing a fictitious check. So she enters the Idaho State Penitentiary on December 6th, 1930. So when she enters, she pleads guilty. She is given 1 to 14 years for that check, aged 30 years old, but she actually would be older because she added two years, or took off two years, I should say. So she's actually about 32. Again, says her nativity is Oklahoma, but we know it's really Georgia. Occupation housewife, she is 5'7", 140 pounds, medium complexion, light brown hair, and brown eyes. So again, she enters, though, as Mrs. George E. Gordon, and she clearly is a habitual criminal. Uh, her mugshot, which you will see on our Facebook page, she's kind of almost like smirking in it. Like, she doesn't really feel bad. She's, uh, sh- uh, yeah, just she's kind of a, just a dark, dark hair, dark eyes, and she's just kind of like, mm, yeah, I'm here, and I don't really feel bad about it. Mm-hmm. She just doesn't, doesn't really seem to care about her crime or any of the crimes that she's committed or the fact that she is sort of leaving her family to sort of their own devices. And according to Idaho Daily Statesman, her family is indeed left to their own devices. So this is an article that appears on uh, December 12th, 1930. It's uh, The title of it is Family of Eight Children Depend on Charity for Aid. An Idaho family has been caught in the tangled web of fate, housing the mother behind prison bars and leaving the father and eight youngsters, of whom the eldest is 14, at the mercy of charity for food, clothing, and shelter. December 6, Mrs. June Gordon was received at the Idaho State Penitentiary to serve a term of 1 to 14 years on a charge of forgery. She was sent to Boise from Twin Falls County. Last Tuesday, city welfare workers found Earl Gardner and his eight children existing in a one-room tourist home in Boise, cold, hungry, and down on the world. So, um, apparently, her husband is going as Earl Gardner, not even as his name or George or anything like that. Earl Gardner is who is her husband. Thursday, the youngsters, now housed in the children's home, added another climax to the drama by admitting that Mrs. Gordon, in prison, was their mother. Previously, they had maintained their mother was dead. The story of the father and his youngsters is one of hardship. Gardner told authorities at the home that he'd been out of work since September, and gradually the prospect of death by starvation had drawn closer. He had almost given up hope of surmounting his difficulties when the family was discovered by welfare workers. Now Gardner's fears are dissipated, as charity will care for the youngsters as long as necessary. For the children's sake, this is good, but for the the father's sake, this is a bunch of bull, frankly. <laughs> He, you know, he tries to pull this pity card of look at me and my kids were so hungry. That's he just is in and out of prison and he can't hold a job because he doesn't really seem to care to hold a job. Mm -hmm. And neither does June. So I feel really bad for the children and they do get to go to the children's home. But I don't really feel bad for the father. This seems like sort of his doing. Uh, In 1931, Asa is arrested for grand larceny after stealing a car, and he comes in under the name George E. Gordon. So he's arrested under the name. He doesn't use the name in the newspaper article. And um, we'll talk about that use of the name Gardner in a second. So at some point after her incarceration, there wasn't a date that I could find on this. It's probably nearing the minimum of her sentence. Uh, June writes a letter to the Board of Pardons. And so bear with me because the handwriting... I can mostly read it, but every once in a while I get stuck up on a word. So, 
I am asking for a pardon as I am ready to go out and make a home for my children and prove to Mrs. Coos of the children's home that I am capable to look after them and raise them right. I was married when I was very young and have never had a chance in life. My husband, Mr. Gardner, was much older than, than myself and was always suggesting wrong things for me to do. If I did not do them, he would be horribly mean to me, threatening to kill me or taking my children where I could never see them again. He is to blame for the charge they have against me here. I have never tried this before, and I was afraid of him and his threats. I have always had to work out and support all of us. I am asking for this chance to prove myself while he is here in the penitentiary. I shall never live with him again, as I have learned my lesson uh, and know that I have not been doing right." I have now served 10 months time here. I should very much like an interview with you if you will be kind enough to grant it. Sincerely, Mrs. June Gordon. And actually, she signs it Mrs. June Gardner, which is interesting because she sort of gives up on her alias from the beginning. Also, she does what not great people do, and she does not take responsibility for her crime. She says... I didn't do this. I only did this because my husband, who was much older than I was, threatened me. If I didn't do it, he threatened to kill me, to take away my kids. Yeah, I've never done this before. Mm-mm. No. <laughs> so she's not, not the most stand-up of citizens. None of these statements really seem to prove true as far as we can tell. She, I mean, we guess we don't know. But as far as we can tell, she wasn't threatened with her life. Um, she says that she's not going to go back and live with him. But... She does mm-hmm. when uh, when she gets out and when he gets out. So her promises to change don't really seem to come true. But June Gordon, nevertheless, receives a full pardon, not just a parole. She receives a full pardon wow. on December 6, 1931, after serving one full year of her four, one to 14 year sentence. Wow. So I don't know if she was well behaved enough that everyone sort of was like, oh yeah, she's not doing anything wrong. You know, she clearly means all of this. She's such a good, you know, she's done really well in prison. If she was sort of able to dupe them that way, because she, she receives a full pardon, which is kind of a big deal. Mm-hmm. So from Boise, she actually heads to Los Angeles. Now, whether her children come with her, I'm not sure. It seems like she may have just kept them in the children's home, like said, like kept her husband in the penitentiary, kept her kids in the children's home and just like peaced out. Yeah, um, maybe to sort of live her own life. Yeah, maybe she was like, I'm going to go down there and establish a household and then bring all the kids to me. And hopefully my husband will be out at that time. Right. Optimistically. Yeah. (laughs) Optimistic, yes. But let me tell you why I think maybe that's not the case. Uh-oh. Is because on March 12th, 1932, she is arrested in Los Angeles under the name June Hostella for the violation of Order 49354-1, which is a rooming house ordination. Oh. And normally what that means is prostitution or being the madam of a prostitution house. Oh my gosh. So... It is likely that she was a sex worker of some kind. Mm. 
For this arrest, she is fined $30 and spent 15 days in jail. So that's in March 1932. And then in November 1932, she is again arrested in Los Angeles for suspicion of forgery. She's transferred to the county jail, but four days later, she's sent to a penitentiary in California for forgery under the name June Wilson. So I don't, I don't know if she had her kids with her. The forgery makes it seem that maybe she did, but the, the violation of Order 49354-1 um, makes me hope that she did not yeah. bring them with her. Yeah, absolutely. Oh. Uh, especially because uh, especially younger girls can get pulled into that life against their will. If you've seen the show Harlots, which I would not shut up about when I was there, uh, it's it's very much just sort of, it turns into sort of a generational job for, for women who can't seem to sort of get out of that cycle. So I really hope that her oldest daughters weren't involved, but we just will not know. And um, that last record of her arrest in California for forgery were the last records in June's file. And I couldn't really trace her whereabouts after 1932. Um, and that's because her aliases make her really difficult to trace. Yeah. Very similar to Mary Holmes and, and many of the inmates who have had a, a whole string of aliases. I do know that Asa and June divorced by 1946 because Asa marries a woman named Sarah Ethel Smith in Montana in 1946. Mm. So I don't think she married again. Maybe she did under a different name because I couldn't find anything under the name Susie Greer. And we don't know what happened to her children. So unfortunately, this is one of those with uh, a non-satisfying ending. And it's not a it's not an overly exciting crime but i don't know i was sort of interested in her her story just because she just seems like one of those women who is sort of always in trouble and just doesn't really seem to care yeah yeah it's that that common thing which is super upsetting where they use their children kind of as pawns in the whole ordeal mm-hmm. like man i just mm-hmm. only hope that the kids had a better life once they were separated mm-hmm. from their parents you know yeah, I can only hope that that she perhaps recognized that her kids would be better off in the children's home. But it doesn't seem that she always would have seen it that way because in her file, again, there's that sort of that letter from her mother that she was like, I think she had a baby. And it, it talked about in that letter that anytime her and her husband went into the penitentiary, her mother would take the kids um, or they would go to a children's home. So it seems that they were sort of in and out of different people's custody which would not make for an easy childhood right. um so i hope that that maybe after this she you know decided it would be best for her kids to to stay in the children's home and, and hopefully be adopted out or i don't know i only hope the best for them yeah because um, that's that's really hard definitely uh we work with this organization every holiday season every christmas around Christmas time, mm-hmm. collecting presents and money and different things for children of, you know, incarcerated individuals. And it's called Angel Tree. Mm-hmm. And on their website, they have this great write-up. It says, uh, every child has a story. 
For 2.7 million children in the United States, that story may be filled with the abandonment, loneliness, and shame that come from having a mom or dad in prison. For many, it may also include following their parents down the same destructive road to incarceration. Mm -hmm. Thousands of churches and community organizations have already committed to serve more than 300,000 Angel Tree kids this year, but there are still many areas of need across the country where children have yet to be matched. And uh, luckily, in Idaho, there were 1,517 children assigned, and every one of them have a match. So families and organizations have taken care to, to help these children, buy them presents, and, and let them feel loved during this holiday season. And yeah, please, please do that, because I know we did it last year when I was there, and that I think, did we get a letter back that said, like, thank you so much, This is these are some of the only gifts that they're able to get this year, and it is really, as we're sort of getting near this, the Christmas season, please consider helping out these kids who, who's, by obviously no fault of their own at all, are in these really horrible situations. Yeah, absolutely. So that's June Gordon, number 4321. Again, not a terribly exciting story, but such is the case with many of our women inmates. Yeah. Well. Yeah. All right. Nice work, Sky. I, Thank I've you. I've never really known June's story, so that's a, that's a new one for me. I like that. Perfect. If you like the podcast, please consider making a donation. You can do that by going to store.history.idaho.gov slash donation.aspx. Be sure to click the Behind Gray Walls podcast tab on the left side of the page. Any donation amount is appreciated and will go toward improving the quality of this podcast, enabling us to bring you the stories that we love and that we hope you love too. Please like and follow our Facebook page, Old Idaho Penitentiary. From there, you can connect with us directly by joining the Behind Gray Walls podcast group, where you can find the mugshots of the inmates featured in today's episode, supplementary images of the penitentiary, and discussions between group members. We'd love to see you there. Um, all right, so who have we got on the slate for you today? I have who I think is an extremely important figure in the prison's history, this fellow named James Gaylord Erhard, uh, number 7018. And he's also, he came in under the name Blue Eagle. And we'll get to that in just oh. a moment. Yeah, so Blue Eagle, Jim Blue Eagle. You'll hear that, and I'll probably call him James throughout the episode. Okay. Yeah, so James, he was born on October 12th, 1912 in Admore, Oklahoma. And uh, Admore is in southern Oklahoma. It sits 90 miles from both Oklahoma, Oklahoma City and Dallas and Fort Worth, Texas. Hey. Yeah. So not far, <laughs> huh? Not far. I could it's spitting distance out here, I think. Yeah. <laughs> uh, the name Admore is actually Irish. It means high grounds or hills. There are a lot of hills in the area. And the city, it's actually located in the Chickasaw Indian Territory. James never mentions what tribe his family is from, but we can kind of guess if he's from that region at this mm-hmm. point in 1912. He's probably Chickasaw, but uh, he never says exactly, which is kind of funny. You, you're going to see I have several pages of quotes, so I apologize. <laughs> I will be reading a lot during this episode. Around the time James was born, Ardmore was known as one of the largest uh, inland cotton ports in the world, but... By about 1913, they had completely stripped the fields. They had over overworked them. And so, luckily, the uh, townspeople found some oil in 1913. 
a year after James' birth, and they struck it, and it's it's still one of the largest oil-producing areas in Oklahoma and in the United huh. States right there. So James' father quickly got into the oil business and became a pipeline contractor. Uh, his mother died when he was about 12 or 13 in 1925, and his father ended up remarrying, but uh, James stated that he never got along with his stepmother. He listed in his intake that he had spent time in an orphan's home in Bethany, Oklahoma. And I, I don't know when or how or why, if that was when he was a teenager or if other circumstances happened to him. He said he had two older sisters named Mary and Velma, an older brother named Burl, and a younger brother named Charlie. He went through elementary, junior high, high school, and then he went to the Oklahoma Baptist University in Shawnee, Oklahoma, and uh, that university was actually established around his birth in 1910. He attended it for two years, but ended up quitting, and on a forum, which he describes his past, it asked why he left his school, and he said, on account of drink, and you're going to see that this is a common theme in his life. After dropping out, he leaves his home at the age of 23 and uh, describes the reason for leaving as family trouble. And that was probably because he just dropped out of college and his he doesn't get along with his stepmother. His father is probably upset at him, so he hits the town. Now, I don't know what happened to him between that age of 23 until about 1930 when I find on a census that he's living in Fort Clark, Texas. And Fort Clark was... I mean, it's got a huge, long history. Uh, In the 1800s, it was used, it was a fort to defend the Mexican border during the Civil War and the Indian Wars. It was was housed soldiers, and it was also a training ground during World War II for soldiers who were going to go in the Pacific. And James actually joined the U.S. Army at the age of 28. But he didn't get very far, because within a year, between 1930 and 1931, while he was in the what looks like the 5th Cavalry Division, he went AWOL, and he couldn't remember if he was given a blue discharge or a yellow discharge because there's at that time there were several different distinguishing discharges. I kind of went down a, a Haley-inspired rabbit hole looking through okay. like all these different discharges and trying to figure it out. I couldn't find anything on yellow discharges, but the blue discharge was nicknamed a blue ticket. And it wasn't honorable or dishonorable. It was just an administrative release from the Army. And it was issued mostly to homosexual service members, African-Americans. And it was pretty controversial. I mean, it is a controversial thing now, especially. Uh But uh, at the time, like if you were given a blue ticket, everybody in your community kind of knew what that meant. That, you know, yeah, your sexuality is the reason that you're out of it. So I thought that was pretty interesting. But uh, the reason for it, I believe, comes when he uh, stole an automobile in 1930. And I couldn't find any details about the car, any of this theft, but I imagine he was released from the Army due to uh, some issues within the community for this theft. Mm. Yeah. Uh, This wasn't his last car he stole. In 1932, he stole another car, and it seems like he stayed out of trouble for about three years until 1935 when he's arrested for burglary in the first degree for the first time. Stays out of trouble for another few years, or he's incarcerated. Unfortunately, I couldn't find what happened to him because Mm. of these charges, but uh, in 1938, he's arrested on a vagrancy charge and investigated with connection to a few thefts. 1939, he marries a woman named Estelle Turkey in Caddo, 
Oklahoma, just east of Admore. His wife's last name was Turkey? Turkey, yeah. Estelle Turkey. Turkey, all right. So Estelle Erard. Uh, 1939-1940, he's arrested and investigated for more burglaries, but he isn't charged. And then he uh, registers for the draft in Cheyenne, Oklahoma, October 16, 1940, and lists his wife's name as his next of kin. So we know that mm-hmm. they were at least married for that for about a year and a half, two years. Mm-hmm. Uh, 1940, he's also arrested on another burglary charge. And it appears that he probably went to an institution for this at some point in Oklahoma. But uh, in 1943, June 6, he marries another woman named Lucille Pacchino. They marry in uh, Oklahoma, and they end up having a son named Rudolph. And Lucille was a stenographer. From his intake papers, we can learn that he deserted Lucille and the child uh, in search for work and probably because of his heavy drinking. Intake papers, they describe him as a dipsomaniac. You ever heard of that? Uh, I've heard of it, but I'm not sure what it means. <laughs> it's basically a fancy word for someone who drinks excessively. Um, yeah. So 1944... He's investigated on a charge of pickpocketing, grand theft, money, and petty thefts, and ends up getting charged and put into the Arizona prison. I couldn't figure out which exact one. There there were several institutions that were open at that point, but I think he was probably at the Arizona State Prison in Florence, Arizona. Then he's released on parole, and while on parole, he gets word that there's a job up in Coeur d'Alene, Idaho. So in 1946... He heads up to Coeur d'Alene, and he's in town for two days before committing his crime. So, this is his written statement about the crime. He writes, On about the night of August 23rd, 1946, I met a woman in one of the bars in Coeur d'Alene. We did considerable drinking, and she gave me her hotel and room number and asked me to be there before 12 o'clock. I was very drunk and went to her room and knocked on the door. When I learned she was not in her room, I crawled through the transom cutting my leg as I did. Oh, no. You know what a transom is? No, but I don't like the idea that he's crawling into it. Right, yeah. That's that little window. You know, like in our offices at the old pen, Those that uh-huh. little window above Th- the, the door? At the top? Yeah, oh, that's no. called a transom. Yeah, so oh, he no. was c- climbing up and over the door <sighs> and cut his leg. Why? Uh, okay. Yeah. So once he's inside, he says, uh, I took a pair of sunglasses, a bottle of perfume, and a bracelet. I left the room through an open window and hid this stuff under a radiator in a bathroom. Then I went to my own room, which was on the second floor of the same hotel. The woman I stole the stuff from came to my room and woke me up, intending not to report this to the officer. Just then, however, the officer walked into the room and arrested me. So it sounds like she came back to her room, was like, oh no, I've been burglarized, someone stole my stuff, and then came to his room after she Mm -hmm. alerts the police, and then Mm -hmm. she's like, oh, you took it, and then the police show up and arrest him. Right, right, yeah. He pleads guilty to the theft, and he's charged with burglary in the first degree and sentenced to not less than five years nor more than ten years of hard labor at the Idaho State Penitentiary. Hmm. So his intake, uh, the prosecuting attorney notes asking for any further information that could be used for the parole board, and he wrote, If this man had not been drinking at the time of the above acts took place, I don't believe his crime would have been committed. And, which are, mm. you know, sage words, mm-hmm. because almost mm-hmm. all of his crimes were probably committed under the influence of alcohol. Right. 
He's received at the prison on September 19, 1946, uh, from Kootenai County. His height, he's 5 feet, 6 and a half inches tall, 141 and a half pounds. Build is medium. Eyes are brown. Hair is dark brown. Complexion, medium. Occupation, portrait painter. Ooh. Okay. Yeah, so this is why I think he's so important. He wrote that mm-hmm. he had measles, mumps, double pneumonia, and typhoid in his life, and he had an operation on his right foot in which two toes were amputated. He also stated oh. that he had contracted gonorrhea in 1939, but it had been treated Ooh. in his hometown. Yeah. Uh, oh, boy. <laughs> he had a small tattoo on his right forearm, uh, simple J-E for James Erard, and several mm-hmm. scars on his arms and hands and uh, one on his face and the side of his head. His first year while he was incarcerated, he seemed to just kind of stick to himself. He never had any infractions or write-ups, and even though he said he never followed any religion, the uh, chaplain said that he regularly attended chapel services, and he would Mm. regularly join the AA Club, the Alcohol Anonymous Club, which recently Mm -hmm. began at the prison in the 1940s. But uh, in August 1947, he wrote a letter to the warden discussing his new business as a portrait painter while incarcerated. He writes, I am writing a letter to Miss Laura Wieldman, who lives at 304 Bannock Street in Boise. I wanted you to know why I am sending her a letter telling her to ask for either you or Mr. Schofield when she wants portraits and oils. Both she and her husband can do a lot to help me. This portrait painting business can work into big money, but it takes a certain amount of tact, for I worked up once before, only to get the idea that I was a playboy. Well, I've brought all this on myself. And it's bitter as gall, but I'll come back yet, as long as I have your understanding. I don't ask for one single favor. I realize I don't have one coming. I also realize that the state is doing me a favor and letting me paint for the public. I just want you to know that I am sincere. I appreciate everything, and I believe I'm just the fellow that can make good in spite of everything pointing the other way. Respectfully, James Erard. And it kind of just shows the hope that he has that painting will Mm -hmm. help him serve out his sentence without any issues. Mm -hmm. Now, the territorial prison, constructed back in 1870, uh, had been converted into a chapel in 1942 after the 1941 legislator provided $3,600 for the remodel. It had a raised floor in the back for church services, performances, and even film projections. But the walls were bare for all those years. So, on September 1st, 1947... James is put in charge of painting the murals on the prison chapel walls. And we have tons of these photos and a lot of mentions in oral histories that discuss these beautiful portraits and and Mm -hmm. biblical scenes that he painted. And I'll post those in the Facebook group. This is an inmate named Melvin Aldis discussing the murals here. To me, the chapel was the most beautiful building in the institution. It had big, beautiful murals. I couldn't give you the measurement of uh, the building off the top of my head. It was a fairly large building. It was the first building built in the institution. It was built in 1870. And uh, even though it was as large as it was, there was only three murals on each side. They were so large. And they were beautiful murals uh, of uh, our Lord Jesus crying over Jerusalem, one on the cross, I can't 
remember right off what the others were, but they were really nice murals. We redid them once while I was there, completely uh, give them the ceiling coat and everything. This was another time which uh, my privileges was extended. <laughs> All inmates were supposed to be in their cells, no matter who they was except night cooks, by midnight. Well, we were painting the ceiling, <laughs> and we had all this scaffolding up in the chapel, and we were not getting through, and the guards seen that we were not just goofing around, and we painted the chapel ceiling all night long. We didn't have to go in at midnight. They were just real swell with us. And <clears throat> we got it done by morning, but we were tired, and... It was, that was a, quite an experience working with the chaplain of the penitentiary. There's another oral history in which the narrator describes the eyes of Jesus being painted so well it looked like he was following you around the room. Inside the chapel, every wall in between the windows had a painting. On the right side was a painting of the Last Supper. But what was very unique about that painting was the way they painted the Lord's eyes. No matter where you went in the chapel, the eyes were always on you. But they were such beautiful paintings. So I just love that <laughs> that idea. That mm -hmm. uh, yeah, it's like the eyes of Dr. T. J. Eckelberg in The Great Gatsby. Like they're the eyes of God. They're always watching. Yeah, I like that. Sorry, I have to throw in a popular cultural reference every episode. There's nothing I can do about it. Somebody <laughs> needs to because I, I am not connected don't worry, to I got you. popular culture. <laughs> <laughs> So these, of course, all these murals are destroyed in 1973 when the chapel and the dining hall are burned during the prison riot. We find the riot that moved them to the new site after I was released took place in the mess hall and in the chapel and totally burnt both to the ground. And as I have been back to the institution since, I was just about heartsick to see that them two buildings which were nice buildings, was completely gutted and flat, but near just the wall standing of the chapel. I mean, that's uh -huh. a huge detriment to the site history. It's one of those things I wish I could go back in time and like just sit in that room mm -hmm. and admire these paintings and just kind of yeah. the, the stillness of a prison chapel. Yeah. Now, so is it true that that when, you know, when it started to burn, part of the reason everyone was so upset was because of these murals, like because they really enjoyed having that space and having those like murals around? Or did I make that up? It was, for the most part, a place of, you know, safety and self-reflection. Mm. In 73, when they had the riot and talking to some of the inmates that had gotten out, we asked them about the chapel, and they said they never intentionally set the chapel on fire. It was the heat from the kitchen and the, em the ash embers that caught it because they didn't want to destroy the work inside. And a lot of the old timers felt a great loss because they used to come in here as myself when we, when we were allowed and just sit here for hours and just look at the paintings. And this is one of the things that I most regret about that last riot they had out there at the old pen. I was not there. And by the name of Ray was a warden. And they burned down the chapel. And they burned those beautiful paintings. And uh, I don't know how much they'd been worth in money, but 
they were very beautiful. Some people say that he had studied in Paris. It's a little bit debatable, we don't know, but regardless of whether they studied in Paris or not, the paintings were, uh, well, they could have hung down here in the art museum anytime, and people would thoroughly enjoy them. And uh, also, uh, you know, a lot of pretty young singers would come in and perform, and so it was a, a big place for the inmates at the institution to see somebody on the outside regularly. Mm-hmm. Uh, lots of the fellows were very dedicated and, and very serious about the chapel service. Of course, there was others who went there just because the guests and the good-looking young ladies had came in and so on, which is natural. No one even downgraded them because they weren't being phony. They said that's what they come for, was to see the good-looking ladies, and, and they were very honest about it. So, yeah, I think it was pretty upsetting that they, they burned mm-hmm. that place down. James seemed to be making his way at the site, and he had this routine going and was doing art and selling crafts and in January 1948, he wrote to Warden Clapp discussing what he'd like to do if he was released from prison. He wrote here, uh, A few days ago, I heard a young fellow who was very close to my idea of starting a hobby club, pattern after my idea and exactly along the lines of my club. It has me a little bit on the worried side. This came over a local radio station. What I would like to bring to Mr. Schofield is that I have made up my mind that if I get paroled to Boise, say to a dry cleaning establishment, I propose to start a weekly afternoon and night classes in portrait painting. I have already in my plans a person to finance my hobby, and he will receive all incoming payments from the students of my club. He will act as a sort of sponsor. I already have starting a list of prospective students and are willing to pay the entrance fee of $10 a month. After hearing a broadcast, it has me worried that my plans may be upset. I was wondering if you could make any suggestions as to when and how I could protect this plan. I'm sure that if I was down there, Boise, say by late spring, I could still put my program into effect. Sir, it has always been my opinion that my sentence was unproportioned to the crime. But surely, I want to say that this one sentence has sent me reeling and has me scared for the first time in my life. And he like keeps going on. It's this this kind of funny letter. And he basically says he would do anything for the warden. He's like, I would work in the state house with you if I could and all this stuff. And at the bottom, my favorite line, because this is all typewritten with a typewriter, at the bottom he handwrites, I am just lucky that this fellow who is starting this hobby club can't paint portraits. <laughs> and below that, <laughs> uh, he said he would, uh, he would love if his five-year sentence could be cut to two or two and one and a half years, if possible. <laughs> this did not seem to sway anybody but uh, mm. he wrote another uplifting letter to Mr. Schofield in February and he says uh, to lay it square on the table I'm sure I can make it because I have to and want to but could you recommend me either a time cut or a conditional release in about April I'm really worried about all these people getting drunk and coming back every day or two and uh, he's referencing the parole violators because between 1947 and 1948, 326 men were released on parole. 92 violated it and were returned to wow. the prison. So that's like about a third. That's like almost 30%. Yeah, that's, a, there. that's a big old chunk. He, said, he continues, I don't have to tell you about fellows whom have gotten breaks, and yet 
they had a much, much worse record than mine. Please remember, I'm okay. I'm not disgusted and will keep going, but I do hope you swing me out on a job soon before these Idaho people get to hollering their heads off about the parole violations. So he's worried that they're going to eliminate the parole board and eliminate parole for inmates before he gets released. All those stinking Idaho people. Right. <laughs> I love that. The worst. Before these Idaho people get to hollering their heads off. I love that line. Oh, yes. If at any time your radio broadcast programs work out or anything I could do to paint for the programs and thus help the general rehabilitation program, I'll always be at my job in town ready to do my bit. Mr. Schofield, I do think that the best way I could be of help to the rehabilitation program would be in helping myself and making a go of my hobby portrait painting class in town for art, as you know, is the key to society. Uh, therefore, having the first and only art hobby club ever to be organized in Idaho, to also donate my time one night a week to youngsters in Boise, to have a juvenile delinquency club attended by boys and girls with their parents, two and three hours a weekend would be something the public would like. I've already talked to Carl Burt about him asking for a free space in town donated by the city. This would keep lots of youngsters off the streets and out of taverns, etc. I once told you I couldn't do time. Well, I figured I could bolster my courage, but with the time I've done before and all, I would rather be dead than do another long stretch. I can say with God as my witness of my most secret thoughts that I was never a thief at heart and wouldn't harm a soul. So it's a very heartfelt, poetic (laughs) letter he writes here to Mr. Mm -hmm. Schofield. It does not seem to have much of an effect. Oh, Um, really? Yeah. So... He decides to try another path for a short time. In March of 1948, he actually joins the prison band, which probably came about when the prison newspaper, The Clock, posted a story about music classes being offered at the prison by this inmate named Bobby Clyde. And he only had a trio of students, three inmates. Their names were Whitey Moore, Dude Doolittle, and Golden Boy Cutaford. Um, They thanked Bobby Clyde's time and patience with the group that were totally in the dark as far as advanced music was concerned and they end this note saying that any person who has a basic knowledge of music can come on down so that's what james did that march in 1948 but uh music is really hard so by october he actually drops it and returns to making art and uh he does it in a big way in october of 48 when he leaves the band he actually Uh, has several pieces of art exhibited at the Boise Gallery of Art, which was the original name of the Boise Art Museum. Just so listeners know, Boise Art Museum is the only AAM-accredited art museum in Idaho and for a 300-mile radius. So, I mean, go to the art museum. Go check it out. And it once held art by one of our inmates while he was incarcerated, Hmm. which is crazy. And I'm... I, I luckily uh, have a really close connection with the art museum because my wife works there. So it's, it's your it's your wife. <laughs> yes. So I'm gonna have have her do some digging and see if they still have any James Gerard work in their collection. That'd be cool. Yeah. So October, it's this huge breakout month for James. October of 1948. Uh, the Statesman article talks about his pieces being exhibited. They say, The entrance hall is filled with paintings by Jim Blue Eagle, whose work has attracted statewide attention. 
Some of the paintings are obviously copied. However, Mr. Schofield, director of rehabilitation of the penitentiary, explained that the paintings were usually enlarged from tiny black and white prints. The colors, though strong and crude, were from a memory of the artist's own invention. One realizes that here there has been very little artistic training. However, there is evidence of an underlying native talent, a talent worthy of support. And the prison newspaper, The Clock, also wrote an article in October called Statesman Reporter in Visit to Local Institution. And and basically, this reporter visits the prison, and it's, it's the first time she had ever been out here. And uh, they ask her what she thinks of it, and she said she likened a prison as a place where often the good in men die. However, she said, I've always wanted to write a story about a prison and its inmates so that I might prove the good that is in them. The purpose of Miss Dana's visit to the prison was to interview Erard. His work is on display along with that of other artists in this section of the country. Miss Dana first learned of his work when Miss Louise Shuddock, executive secretary to Governor C.A. Robbins, showed her some of Erard's paintings. Mr. Jack Robertson, staff photographer of the Statesman, took many photographs of his work, which, ah, I wish I had it, but I love that this reporter learns about this prisoner's paintings by the secretary of the governor. <laughs> it's mm-hmm. like this This is pretty big news at this time. And the name Robert Schofield, I keep saying that. He was the vice chairman of the State Board of Corrections, and he headed the rehabilitation department here at the prison. And he's the one who helped Harry Sylvie uh, with all of his musical endeavors, you know, performing on the outside, going to radio stations and performing. And he also helped the prison population that wanted to write to purchase the the goods to make the Clock magazine to produce all of that work. He also served as kind of James's uh, agent in a in a letter that came from Arizona, from Grand Canyon, Arizona, October 29th. This woman named Miss Harriet H. Miller wrote to Schofield saying, uh, With the two pictures framed and placed on the walls of the traveling home, they are most beautiful and show off with a superb array of colors. It is with pleasure to thank you for allowing the young man to take the order and to do the work. The two pictures that I have asked to have painted, I would like to have one of them in contrast of the desert scene that Jim Blue Eagle painted that I picked up at your office this morning. Mr. Schofield, I would like to ask a special favor of you as I feel sure that you will sanction the proposed idea. I would like to have another picture, positively original and composed from the artist's own memory, a picture the same size of the ones I have now and which will be placed in a library that is in the East and which we have acquired many interesting articles from Indian paintings to colorful weaving. This will amount to three pictures based on $5 each and with which I desire to have autographed with Blue Eagle's own signature. I was quite provoked when I reached the trailer today and found that he hadn't signed his name as the ones in the art gallery. Just why didn't he sign his name on the two? So all the way from Arizona, Jim is being commissioned to paint portraits and desert scenes, and he actually sells a bunch of art to Harriet Miller, who I I tried to find out if she was an art collector or uh, what what about her, but I couldn't find much more about her. Um, she also asked to buy like several hobby craft uh, placemats and things like that that were being made by other inmates. She then asked about sending James some some things, some presents. If it is possible, I would like to mail some sort of gift package at Christmas to the young man 
as he hasn't any kin, as I understood you to say. Of course, this would be mailed to him. Would any of the following articles be permitted, such as candy, cigarettes, pipes, or something in the line of some other type of gift that you would have a good suggestion on? And, uh... You know, the, he says, yeah, you can send it all directly to him, and it's all going to go through the mail center, of course. A couple days after this letter in November, an article reviewing the Boise Gallery, the Idaho Statesman wrote this article called uh, Art for Man's Sake. Local talent exhibits variety of artwork at Boise Gallery, and they mention his art in it. And they say, uh, the 19th annual state art exhibit sponsored by the Boise Art Association and currently at the Boise Art Gallery is rewarding if the spectator realizes that very few of the exhibitors make any claim to professionalism. <laughs> there is a variety of medium styles and subjects. And then skipping a couple paragraphs. In contrast to the awareness of structure in Mary Kirkwood's paintings is the portrait by Jim Blue Eagle of Boise. He has a genuine talent for drawing, but the application of paint is too thin and overworked by brushing, which leaves the color impoverished. However, this young man's untutored talent and dexterity is evident. So, I mean, he's he's working all this stuff. He's got art at the uh, the Boise Art Gallery. He's got mm-hmm. commissions going to Arizona. He has the governor looking at his artwork. He has all these people. He then just decides to donate a couple paintings to the Boise Christian Community Center. And uh, with the painting, he re- wrote this letter on November 6, 1948. He said, This oil painting of Christ in the Garden of Gethsemane and all that it means is given to you. It is my hope that the same spirit which guided my hand in reproducing this painting may give hope, encouragement, and new faith in God to all. This picture was painted at a time I felt that I did not have a friend. Since I painted it, I felt that it was the turning point in my life which began during the painting of this picture. If you feel these things after looking at it, I will have been repaid a thousand times over. I was inspired to continue my study of painting through Mr. R.P. Schofield's Director of Rehabilitation and the encouragement and help of the Reverend L.W. Backman. I am thankful that I've had this opportunity to give the world that which my love for God and Christ has put into me. Sincerely yours, Jim Blue Eagle. I'm sorry these are so many quotes, but like there's ah he's he is he's a thoughtful person and it's really mm-hmm. nice and it's that same thing where when you are drinking and doing all that you forget about your your ability and now he's being recognized for this ability and he's feeling great. He's feeling on top of the world mm-hmm. and proud of himself. And sure. the praise for his artwork doesn't end there. On November thirtieth, 1948, Idaho Statesman posts another story about the art exhibit at the Boise Art Gallery. Apparently, 1,410 people had gone through the gallery in that month and cast a vote on their favorite painting, and James actually won second prize in the popularity contest. And Hmm. yeah, for his, his painting titled Old Prospector, which was done in oils, and he was awarded a bunch of paint supplies by the Fritchman Art Shop. We discover from a December 14, 1948 letter from the vice chairman of the State Board of Corrections, uh, Robert Schofield, that James worked really quickly. He painted three oil paintings in a, in a month, which were sent to Harriet Miller, that, that woman in Arizona, each for $5. And uh, she added an extra dollar thirty-five for shipping. And all the money went right to his account. And he painted this one piece that he titled The Great White Throne. And she said, 
It's truly a work of art to a person who has never been in that region, as there are several perspective views. Considering what time of year and just which angle to establish the best setting for oil coloring. It is certainly another grand picture to hang among my collection of many other different artists. And then she continues by commissioning more paintings from him. So she now has like four in her collection of his, if if not more than that. And uh, she says she would like to have one such as the Indian in back of the stone wall waiting with the horse standing by the adobe hacienda and one like the first set with the string of American bison coming from the far beyond into the face of the picture and another three of some very enhancing scene of Indians on the plains with horses or a true-to-life scene such as you like to have for yourself. And... You know, the the clock also noted a, a big thing that he was set out to do in the April edition of the of the magazine, uh, April 1949. He said, uh, Jim Blue Eagle, local artist, distinguishes himself recently by painting an 11-foot mural for the Purity Bakery in Boise, Idaho. So just like uh, Harry Sylvie was sent out to perform on the radio, now Jim is actually being sent out to paint these beautiful murals throughout the town. And uh, he says... This was the largest painting that Jim has painted for an outside concern. Another mural finished by Jim was an amazing photo-like conception of an old Indian chief for Dr. Beebe of Seattle, Washington. One can hardly describe his paintings because they are so magical in their appearance to the eye. He also paints the murals that hang on the chapel walls. These have been viewed by hundreds of people during the last year and a half. This man is a master at his work, and that is lightly said. I've known many artists and have yet to see one that can match his skill and dexterity that he puts in his work. We have learned that Jim is soon to appear before the Board of Consideration. So, in conclusion, we say good luck, Jim. We wish you the best. And finally, July 19th, 1949, James Erard is discharged from the prison. So he had an extremely productive incarceration where he seemed Mm -hmm. to clean himself up he stopped drinking he was painting he was doing his passionate thing and he stayed out of trouble until 1952 he's caught trespassing at the union pacific railroad in pocatello and given a five-day stint in the county jail now i don't know if if he was drinking or what but uh in 1956, he was. He was arrested for drunk driving in Oxnard, California, and sentenced to a 30-day jail sentence. Mm. And they actually interviewed him about his painting talent, so I think word had spread. But uh, he basically talks about alcohol being the worst thing that sucks all the creativity from him. And when he was sober, he would constantly rediscover his love for painting and his passion for it, you know. Uh, in June 1956... Just a few months after his arrest, there's actually this article written in Oxnard, and it's uh, it'll, it'll be the last thing I, I read here. <laughs> so, inspiration in a cell. One does not often find encouraging stories in the city jail, but one was found the other day. It was the story of Jim, Jim Erard, sentenced to 30 days on a drunk driving charge. The story was not a little inspiring. Here was a man who had a talent, a creative talent, of painting. He had enjoyed some success as a portrait painter. Then, half a dozen years ago, he laid down the brush, began working in a cleaning establishment, and then began to feel sorry for himself. The only thing he could think of then, to drown out his self-pity, was to do it through drink. He took to the bottle, and so he became an alcoholic. Then came his arrest and sentence. 
Now, many men jailed on drinking charges merely wait out the time until they are free again, free to get another bottle. But in jail, Jim Merard found a friend. That friend was police captain Robert Hinistro. The latter heard about the former talent of the prisoner, helped get him painting supplies, helped him get to work in his cell. The other day, when this man walked out of the cell free once more, he was afire with a desire to resume portrait work. He was fortified with a number of orders. He was asking about the Oxnard Open Air Art Show in order to discover whether he could exhibit. He was no longer feeling sorry for himself. If a man can master himself, if he can turn to the field where his abilities lie, if he can keep at work in that field nine times out of ten, or better, ninety-nine times out of a hundred, he will achieve. For he will find himself with a useful, serviceable occupation. He will enjoy the sensation of adding to the good things of life for other people. Whether the measure of his success is great or small, he will have the inner satisfaction of knowing that he is doing his best with the talent he possesses. One hopes that Erard, who painted once and successfully under the name of Blue Eagle, will find the old skills returning. The old satisfaction once more his, one hopes that this restored interest in creative work in the field of art will serve to be a strong and steady deterrent against a return to alcohol. For while he is at work, he will no longer feel sorry for himself and no longer feel pushed to forget that sorrow in drink. What happens now is up to him, of course, but he has found that there are friends ready and eager to help, even when one is suffering the ignominy of residence in jail. He has found that people are interested, not in his faults, but in what he may do to achieve. The whole story is a good one. Jim Rard, by what happens from now on, may make it a truly inspiring one. So from this moment, from this 1956 article from California until his death on July 13, 1967 in Oroville, California, I didn't see that he got into trouble ever again. And, you know, what I truly hope is that he did what he wanted. He want, he created a, a class where he taught underprivileged youth and anybody from the public how to paint portraits. And uh, mm-hmm. I hope that someone out there right now has a has a blue eagle in their house just hanging. And maybe they don't know what it is and they don't know where it came from. But, you know, his is is that story of of alcoholism and letting the bottle drown out your belief in yourself and, uh, you know, everything you are good at and, and care about. Yeah. No, <laughs> I, I think. No, I, I really love his story. That's a really nice, I think, sort of reminder of I think going back to Jeremy's interview that these these inmates are so talented and that they have this enormous amount of talent within them if they were only given the chance to cultivate it which is what we see from a couple different corrections officers one here in in Idaho and one in in uh, California and so that we have to be willing to allow these inmates the opportunity to pull that the you know use that energy to a creative positive cause and that he's such a good example of that absolutely yeah support artists support people who are being creative artists yeah absolutely (laughs) definitely we need more creativity in the world because people people can do some really cool stuff go to your local art museums support local artists and support creativity in general if someone wants to do something you know encourage it it's it's way better than and wasting time or uh, being lazy, I, I guess. <laughs> sometimes being lazy is okay. I'll just tell you that. As a grad student, sometimes it's okay. I had oh, a lazy man. day today. I just watched TV. <laughs> <laughs>
But I've been working very hard on final papers, so it's fine. Nice. Good work. Well, keep it up, uh, Sky. Well, I hope you. Thank you. <laughs> I want to encourage you. <laughs> thank you. I will, I will keep being creative with my papers. Well, great research, as usual. <sighs> and actually, that was yeah. very, very thorough. I see why you wanted to take an extra day uh, yesterday before yeah. we recorded, because that's a... <laughs> That's a lot. Yeah, it's. I think he is important in the prison history, and he's got a great mm-hmm. story of like re, reinvigoration in mm-hmm. himself be, through his artwork. Yeah, I think that's an important thing. And no, I agree. And the chapel was so instrumental. Can I tell you a, a funny like family story that I have from the chapel? Of course. So my great grandfather. He was LDS, and he was an LDS, uh, I think he was a bishop. And so the LDS services were one of, as you know, one of the services that inmates could go attend. And one day he took my uncle with him, and my uncle said that he remember he must have been like 13 or 14, like young teenager. And I took him into the chapel, and Blue Eagle's art would have been there. Um, so, he, you know, he said he sat down next to this inmate, and gra- as his uh, grandfather gave stood up to, to give the sermon and my uncle like turned to the guy next to him and he was like, hi, my name is Jerry. And he kind of shook his hand and, and the guy was like, oh, my name's so-and-so. And I don't remember, he, I don't know if he remembered the name or, cause I don't know what the name is. And my uncle goes, oh, what are you in for? And he goes, oh, I killed someone. And he was just like, it just struck me at that moment that I was this like 13 year old kid sitting next to like a convicted murderer. But, wow, and like I said, yeah. I, he may, have, he may remember the name. I need to talk to him again, but and then, actually, my family's quite connected to this prison because his wife, her father worked uh, as, a, as a warden and I think assistant warden close to the prison's close. He was there for the 73 riot. So they're quite connected to the prison oh, uh, yeah. without even knowing it. So anyway, it's a bit, a bit of family That's history crazy. there. Yeah. So, I mean, so he would have seen... I should have asked him if he remembered any of the art. Maybe I'll shoot him a text or something because I'd be interested to know what he thought of that artwork. Definitely. Alright, well, that is another episode in the books. <laughs> Woo, good work, Sky. Alright, thank you so much, everybody. Do your own time. Do your own number. We'll see you next week. Bye. If you enjoyed Behind Grey Walls, please rate, review, and subscribe so others can find our podcast. If you're interested in more Old Idaho Penitentiary information and to see mugshots of the inmates featured in this episode, follow the Old Idaho Penitentiary on Instagram and Facebook. If you want to learn more about the Idaho State Historical Society and its other sites, follow ID State Historical Society on Instagram or visit history.idaho.gov. If you have a question or comment for the hosts, please email us at behindgraywalls at gmail.com.